0: Brought to you by Moonbeam Multimedia. This is
1: 16 to 1, a podcast about education, teaching, and learning.
0: Hello there Hello Well we're back into a normal episode for the two of us Yes And our last episode, Dr. Giselle Shorter from the Rakes Foundation joined us Yeah It was really, really great to talk with her And I'm going to hold her to it That she's going to have to come to Columbus For And we're going to have to do a trivia with her mm-hmm. um, So if you missed it you can always go back and find it. Like I said, it was episode eighty-one. Yeah, and I would love for you all to listen to it. I I will say that I don't know if this is how
1: you felt, but I was a little bit thunderstruck, and I was very nervous. You could probably tell. Yes. When you're listening to the I thing. was nervous. I didn't mean like I, I was, could tell you were nervous. Oh yeah, I, I was nervous. I was. I mean, it wasn't reasonable for me to be that nervous, but there were just a lot of technical things too because mm-hmm. we were traveling and trying to record, yeah. and I was worried about the internet blowing up. It worked and, well. Yeah, it seemed to work. Given okay. Given some
0: some mountain internet. Yeah. We had, like, held together.
1: We had some in the middle of nowhere internet issues to deal with. So yeah, that,
0: but it was really good.
1: I just I'm not normally engaging with professionals who have that kind of deep and broad experience in their mm-hmm. field, and it can just be a little intimidating to find yeah. the right ways of asking these questions you that touch on these things that are really really difficult. Them.
0: No, it was a good. It was a good conversation. It, was, it was just really great to chat with her. Definitely um,
1: outside of our normal format for the show but kind of fun for us to be able to do. Yeah. And we're kind of just, you know, experimenting and always trying to find new and interesting guests. So if you have uh, guest recommendations for us and you think that there's somebody that you know of who's working mm-hmm. at the intersection of some of the questions that we tackle on this show, we would love to to reach out to them. So please do yeah. write in to us. Hello at 16 to com is our email address, as always. We'd love to hear from you yeah. with guest recommendations. But yes, thanks so much to to Dr. Shorter for joining us for that last episode that we have done. And uh, now we are back to our regularly yeah. scheduled programming.
0: And just really quickly, we had a couple of emails come through these last couple weeks. Just reaching out and saying hello. So Vanessa and Alex, hello. Yeah. Vanessa is and- studying interdisciplinary
1: studies for middle school math and science. Uh-huh. And then Alex is doing some research on the, uh,
0: the teacher shortage. Yeah. But we yeah. love getting those emails and we do our best to respond as quickly as we can. So hi, from Vanessa and Alex. And thanks. Thanks for reaching out. We love
1: hearing from all of the aspiring educators out there and from seasoned professionals in the field, whoever you are, yeah. wherever you are, we love hearing from you. So thanks for taking the time to write us.
0: And I, and I have a fear as we record a lot that all I'm doing is talking about every reason why people should not want to become a teacher. And it's not because that's what I believe. It's because it's, it's hard Mm-hmm. And so, um, hearing from from people like Vanessa and Alex is is so rewarding because there are there are more who are interested in doing the work and knowing what they're getting into. And I think that that's I think it's great. Mm-hmm. So I'm excited for them. So, last thing before we jump into the the pod episode topic. Yes. I have an update to give mm-hmm. on my DC trip yes. from a month ago. We because were expecting that. We, we we did say we'd get an update from you, and it's been a long time It's been coming. a long time, but this is the first time we've had a chance to mm-hmm. because of Dr. Shorter's episode. So just really quickly, as I said a month ago, I was about to take a group of 150-plus high school students to DC to do their makeup trip from middle school, which was canceled because of COVID. We did it. My dad was one of our tour guides. Mm-hmm. Um, I think in three days we walked just about 25 miles. That's a lot of walking. You know how the saying that it is like a tired dog is a good dog? It's like the same thing for teenagers. Like a tired teenager is a good teenager <laughs> because our goal every day was just to make them so tired that they do not do anything bad. Let's exhaust them. Uh-huh. But we had great weather. The cherry blossoms were like 90% bloomed. hmm It was great. We had a really fun time. It makes me wish I could take... Kids like this every year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but you came I was pretty energized about it, I guess I would say. I was. It, it was, was a good feeling exhausted, to, get to share that. Exhausted, but energized. We had a great trip. It was wonderful. It was just so much fun. What it's, was your favorite thing that you did on the trip? I actually, we did something I've never done before. We got to visit the Pentagon Memorial for 9 11. Mm-hmm. And I'd never done that one. I've never done and that. Either. It is. Beautiful. I mean, it's like, it's so moving. It's just like, it's really, really well done. And I've seen the Flight 93 Memorial, which is one of the other planes that crashed that morning. And then I have been to Ground Zero a lot of times. So I have seen its evolution since 9-11 and so... All of them are, like, really striking. But for some reason, the Pentagon one just, like, really hit me. And I think it's because you walk in between these bench-looking things that are all dedicated to the people. Depending on which way the benches like, face tells you if they were on the flight or in the Pentagon. Mm. And so you're on the side of the Pentagon where it hit. So there's this huge Pentagon standing there. And you can see at the top of it where they rebuilt it. And I just think that it was just really striking for some reason. And it being both old and new. It was just really moving. Hmm. And it was interesting to share that with my students because, you know, I was in sixth grade when it happened. So I have, like, real memories as a young person of it and to get to talk to my students about, like, where I was and all that stuff. Yeah, it was, isn't it weird when your students talk to connection. you
1: about nine eleven and they're like, back when you were growing up, when you were And they kid. weren't
0: alive. Right. Like, my students right. now were not alive uh, for yeah. 9-11, so... It was just, it was kind of a moving, you know it's what I mean? It's wild. Mm-hmm.
1: It's wild to think of that, de- that event that is so defining to our generation. Yeah. yeah. Kind of exposed. It was to really,
0: it was really moving and they had a thing. It's also, I think, so weird that memorial because the Pentagon is just bustling, right? Like it is this very busy place. And when you walk up to it, there's this, the signage that kind of explains and sets the tone and gives you some grounding for what you're about to see and then you you can call a phone number and it'll give you one of two tours and so you walk around it if you choose to with your phone up listening to a recorded com like you and i mean like interesting so there aren't docents or anything that's a really interesting approach because it's an
1: outdoor memorial it is an outdoor memorial audio guides Mm -hmm. like you would in a typical museum that's interesting technology yeah just
0: call a number and so that way you know you can visit it at your leisure Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. neat memorial we should go
1: all right. I think you would like to we'll see We'll have it. to put it on our list next yeah, time we're in D.C. it's really C. beautiful.
0: Anyways, that's my update. Okay, cool. So, this episode. Yes. What do we have on deck?
1: Well, we've been doing a lot of thinking about the school as the nexus of community, uh, especially after our last discussion with Dr. Shorter. And we kind of wanted to pursue that a bit more follow those lines of thinking, and look at some of the narratives that are becoming familiar to us broadly in the contemporary educational landscape. I want to interrogate some of these narratives a little bit with the goal in mind of strengthening, building, and re-enlivening a sense of community that many of us feel might have been lost, especially in post-COVID times. I think that what we need to start doing is realize that some of the patterns that we have fallen into of the ways that we talk about some of the problems that face our educational system and our country generally. Some of the ways that we talk about those problems are buying into a narrative of two sides and not much opportunity to get beyond the us versus them of the two sides Mm. of those arguments. So I'm kind of interested in interrogating questions having to do with our educational system in a way that doesn't ignore those two-sided arguments because we don't want to pretend like the impact of some of the more pernicious of these arguments doesn't matter. So things that I have in mind are things like books being banned from libraries across the country and LGBTQ students being targeted because of all kinds of rhetoric in the media and in our political systems about them. So anyway, that's all of that is just to say, we're not trying to say that the sidedness of these arguments isn't important and doesn't have impact and shouldn't be addressed, but we also kind of want to step outside of the sidedness for a second and try to try to make some progress in a way that is a little, a little less noise, maybe.
0: So agree with, that.
1: <laughs> with all of that in mind, this week we are going to look into the declining rate of volunteerism in America, and this is a trend that tracks across all age groups, but we're kind of focusing in on how, especially for young people, The civic structures around us, and this includes schools, are sometimes inaccessible to them in a way that creates the illusion that they are disengaged. But as we're going to discover, there are also sort of systemic variables at play here that can prevent young people from becoming involved in civic engagement and volunteerism in the ways that we might want them to be. I, I don't know if you experience among your peers this kids these days sense that Mm -hmm. it's hard to engage and meet people where they are
0: Uh, yes yeah i I hear it all the time i don't i don't think there's any truth to it but i know plenty of people our age and older that are like well they just don't want to work or they just don't want to whatever and it's a very easy blame game and i think the media is is at the heart of it for sure And I think that politically speaking, uh, that ties in very quickly with COVID and things like that. But it has become an easy scapegoat. And uh, it's very easy to say, oh, it's um, these young people's problem or whatever. As a person who spends a lot of time with teenagers and has spent a lot of time with teenagers for the last 10 years, I can tell you that there are differences in these kids, but it's not because of anything other than the world that we've created for them to live in. And that's the biggest problem, is that we have created these issues for them, which are swallowing them. And then we'll be like, well, they don't want to work.
1: Or they Mm. don't want to vote, or they don't want to volunteer, or they don't want to donate. Yeah. So that's what we're interrogating, this sense that. Well, if people aren't volunteering, aren't giving, aren't voting, aren't becoming civically engaged, that must mean they're not interested. It's easy to make that assumption that they're not doing it because they're not interested. And because that if that's the case, then I mean, what can you do? It's almost sort of like assuming that that is the reason or the cause for disengagement. Mm -hmm. It also prevents us from coming up with solutions to address it, because it's really hard to Get somebody interested in something they're not interested in. No. But it's much it's much easier to work with people who are interested and direct their interest in various ways. Yeah. And I think what we're going to find from some of the research here is that especially young people are interested in these things. It's just that we need a new model because we, we cannot measure engagement that looks very different from the ways that we are mm-hmm. used to measuring engagement. And we cannot expect Young people to exist in a mass media world and engage with traditional institutions in the same ways that we have engaged with them in the past,
0: I think part of my problem with these accusations is for the people who are making them how are you free of this of this thing that has been created that the rest of us now have to deal with like who are the people raising teenagers that are all of these things like the call is coming from within the house. You know what I mean? That's yeah. how it feels here.
1: I think for me, I'm interested in starting to dismantle any argument that frames an us versus them entrenchment. And and again, it's not because I don't have my own political beliefs. And it's not because I'm not on one side or the other of a, a wide range of political issues. It's not because of that. but. But I think I'm growing tired of being locked in these debates that have been handed to us mm-hmm. by media and social media or just by our own lack of awareness or education. There's a lot at play here. But there are political actors in this world who want to see us stuck, who have decided, you know, it would be great if America wasn't on top. And again, we're really not on top in, in many meaningful Uh, vectors but there are people out there who want to see our experiment fail and to the extent that we become stuck in a two-sided argument that is handed to us by whomever uh, we are failing (laughs) because 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 we just stop there and don't move beyond it so anyway to that point i want to throw out a couple of facts and figures here from the most recent census the Info from the U.S. Census Bureau for 2019 and 2021. People ages 16 and 17 uh, had the highest rate of formal volunteerism of of all age groups. I don't know how they broke up the other age groups, but 16 to 17 had the highest rate of formal volunteerism of all age groups at 28%. And then as a bonus, parents with children under 18 formally volunteered at a higher rate of 30% than those without children in their household at 21%. So this suggests that our education system provides this great opportunity for volunteer engagement and civic accountability. And we kind of have a duty to look at the ways in which the school system can intersect with these challenges and can engage young people Mm -hmm. uh, into these habits of lifelong service and caring about voting and all kinds of things like that. Another note of hope as we launch into this, this is from Tufts University uh, Tisch College Center for Information and Research on Civic Learning and Engagement. They estimated that 50% of young people ages 18 to 29 voted in the 2020 presidential election, a remarkable 11-point increase from 2016, and likely one of the highest rates of youth electoral participation since the voting age was lowered to 18. This uptick in voting engagement is not matched in the world of volunteerism, and we'll talk about that more. But I think that in general, we need to think of these issues as ones of uneven access to opportunity for meaningful civic engagement. We need to think about a divide created by differences in generational relationships to social institutions and technologies. And then just like the clashing sets of norms and priorities that come out of that too. All right, so let's kick this off by talking about the problem of uneven access to opportunities for meaningful civic engagement. We hit first on this article from the Children and Youth Services Review. Yeah. I'm going to have a few passages from this article because I thought it was super interesting. But the article is called Promoting Civic and Political Engagement Among Marginalized Urban Youth in Three Cities, Strategies and Challenges, which is a mouthful. But
0: they did a good job of summarizing... What I think is at stake here. Do you want to take us through? So one of the quotes from it uh, says that challenges associated with youth, civic and political engagement include youth alienation from their communities and institutions, capacity and resource limitations, ritual rather than real engagement and challenges of inclusion. And then we also have this 2019 Bloomberg article called Why
1: Americans Stop Volunteering. And it's kind of interesting that you were just talking about the 9-11 memorial because 9-11 actually has an impact on volunteering Mm -hmm. rates in this country. I'm not surprised by that. Yeah. So there's a post 9-11 hike in volunteering rates. They they went up for several years after 9-11 and... A lot of that is just because of the social impact of 9-11 on this country. People felt the need to kind of come together in community and serve in ways that they hadn't before. But mm-hmm. ever since then, and I guess it was about maybe about five or six years post-9-11, things started to decline. I Don't quote me on that. I might have that wrong. But ever since then, we've kind of been on a more or less steady decline in volunteerism mm-hmm. rates.
0: Yeah, so the 2019 Bloomberg article said that Researchers are still studying the reasoning and the behavioral changes behind the decline, but one reason could be the certain opportunities for civic engagement in rural areas that are disappearing. Rural areas? Uh Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And so it goes on in this to say, if you think about it, the two main ways people volunteer are through churches and schools. And in rural areas, there have been consolidations of both, which could result in fewer opportunities and fewer civic organizations in these communities. Mm -hmm. Um, And it said that even the metro areas that saw a decline in volunteer rates, lower homeownership rates, and higher levels of economic distress were a common theme. And it goes on to say, you can imagine that if you buy a home in a community, you tend to be more anchored to it and be in it long term. Historically, those kinds of behaviors have led people to be more engaged. So commuting time is also connected to how people give. The longer it takes people to get to work, the less time they spend on their community and civic obligations. Yeah. so I think that's kind of what we're in the heart end of right right now. And I'm talking especially about Central Ohio as we're going through this very odd moment of who are we? What do we look like? This huge shift of intel... You know, we live in a in a community about a half hour outside of Columbus and we're we're looking at it going, Well, who will this make us? And what is that going to do to our homes and our community and our schools?
1: Yeah, Kate Kate's talking about Intel, the computing company is building a huge chip manufacturing plant here in central Ohio, not very far away from us. And mm, it's gonna have it's us. gonna it's probably going to transform our rural community into a more Mm suburban-feeling one. It's going to bring tons of economic activity and all kinds of stuff to sort through here. But but when you're talking
0: about homeownership, commuting times, and things like that, that's kind of what's at the heart of all the problems that we're going to be facing, I think, here shortly.
1: Yeah, and we have another quotation from the Chronicle of Philanthropy. There's an article called Americans are volunteering less. What can nonprofits do to bring them back? This is specifically about COVID because I think COVID has also had an impact on this and probably a disproportionate impact oh. on rural areas. But it said that the impact of COVID-19 is, of course, a significant factor in the latest data. This is about volunteering. Uh, so the volunteer rate among parents of school age children, for instance, dropped more than that of parents with no children at home. Makes sense. The decrease was also sharper among people with higher levels of education who are generally more likely to comply with COVID restrictions.
0: Also super interesting to me because yeah, we were all staying at home.
1: We're in an interesting moment right now. The economic soup that we are in, which is people keep kind of throwing around the term recession. I really can't tell people. I've heard economists say we're already in one and that we're soon going to be in one. And I, I can't tell when which of those becomes true. But anyway, the crunch to earn dollars, the commuting that comes with that for a lot of people, although that did change, uh, the sort of ratio of people commuting did change with COVID, but these trends make it more
0: difficult uh, for people to find the time to become engaged. Well, and the other thing that I've seen since COVID is, you know, I I deal with students who are applying for colleges and Scholarships and trying to get into the National Honor Society and things like that. And th- some of them have had a hard time finding ways to give back to their communities. Some of these groups weren't allowing outsiders to come in mm-hmm. and offer time and whatever else. And so it, it's kind of a double-edged sword in some ways because um, while we see a decline, it's also at the the risk of safety and health for others. And so... We've had to be kind of creative with some students in the past and this year, too, to say, well, what was your community service like? And it's and a lot of it, now some of them are just because they were teenagers and didn't think to plan ahead, but probably just as many, just didn't have any opportunities or mm-hmm. not as many.
1: The other bit of research that I wanted to include here, this is more specific to voting. This is, again, from Tufts University, uh, the article, Growing Voters, Engaging Youth Before They Reach Voting Age to Strengthen Democracy, Said every community has a variety of assets and constraints to creating a culture where engagement is encouraged and facilitated. Because of the way engagement is often set up or administered, those challenges can be especially acute for youth from low income households and from communities of color. For example, school clubs, youth organizations, and other extracurricular activities can be important incubators of civic behavior, but depending on their race and ethnicity or socioeconomic status, young people may have very inequitable access to those opportunities. So we, we know that about educational opportunity more broadly. There is disparate impact on communities from these different subsets. The struggles that students face in our education system generally impact those those students more across the board. And it's also true of engagement in civic activity. Mm -hmm. So I want to move on to this other thought that there are generational relationships to social institutions and technology that cause clashing norms and priorities. And this is the line of thinking that produces that endless ad hominem, why aren't the kids engaged? Why don't the kids care kind of stuff? But, But there are, I think, important generational differences in attitude and outlook and all kinds of things. And I want to kind of mm-hmm. in- uncover some of those. So again, this is from Tufts U. This is a quote. Numerous interconnected factors shape whether youth electoral participation is high or low. These include the competitiveness of elections, how much or how little campaigns and organizations reach out to young people the state's civic culture and civic education policies, the demographic composition of the youth population, and state voting laws that can either facilitate voting or pose barriers for youth. You know, it's just saying we have to be careful not to blame young people for not participating yeah. when we are the ones who have created the structures that make it difficult for them that's to participate. Just, yep, that's yeah.
0: my whole problem. Yeah. And back to the top. <laughs> It is a circle.
1: <laughs> yeah. This is from the Children and Youth Services Review article again, the promoting civic and political engagement among marginalized urban youth. Indeed, there is significant evidence that young people are more likely to choose alternative forms of political engagement, such as online campaigning or participation in demonstrations over voting or joining political parties. Thus, several scholars argue that youth that young people are not disinterested in politics, they just engage differently, favoring an actualizing form of hmm. citizen. Citizenship over the dutiful citizenship of previous generations. I think this one is very interesting because I think that there is an appetite among young people right now for engagement that is more meaningful. Like it's not enough. It feels well. It feels empty because. The, it doesn't feel like you're executing the duty in service of any greater good when you feel so disenfranchised from a political system, and when the political system is so dysfunctional as it is now. When, when we have dysfunction in our politics to the level that we currently have, it, it's hard to imagine why anyone would want to have a duty to that in a traditional sense. Well,
0: and it's easier to feel hopeless and not yes have an interest in it. Yes. I mean, if you're if you're looking at something on fire. Why do you want to run into it? I mean, you have to be so motivated by the hope of what the ruin is that I don't think a lot of teenagers can look at it and say, this is hope. Mm -hmm. Now, some of them are certainly capable, and I'm convinced that that's why so many people in Congress run out of TikTok is because they keep getting filleted on there.
1: Yeah, yeah. And it just kind of makes me sad because the TikTok hearings cover up a lot of the real problems of social media and discourse around mass media generally, and they exist and they need to be addressed because they're causing our brains to rot. They truly are. But on the flip side, they also provide a kind of digital community for for people who need it. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't think we should be in the habit of taking away vibrant places where information is exchanged and learning happens just willy-nilly, right? Just it makes me sad, but mm-hmm. me too. Anywho, sort of related to this, I, I think there's this problem of ritual rather than real engagement. And this is from the Children Youth Services Review article again. They're talking about opportunities for organic or informal civic and political engagement processes and communities have been suppressed in favor of top down, large scale policy models part of the critique concerns the extent to which youth engagement efforts, particularly those focused on engaging youth in deliberative processes connected to government, such as youth advisory boards, youth councils, youth parliaments, and the like, are more ritual than real engagement, limited to advisory functions rather than actual decision making. A challenge noted by respondents, especially those on the front line, is that even when young people get engaged to some extent, The lack of follow-up, feedback, and evidence that their input was listened to and acted on leads often to a return to disengagement and to further and reinforced disillusionment. Hmm. This really resonated for me. It's interesting. Even now, as someone, I've recently, over the past year, been doing some volunteer work in local government. I was serving on a strategic planning committee. I think I've mentioned this on the pod before, but we were coming up with our town's 10-year strategic plan plan. And in that context, too, people are saying it's really, really hard to get people volunteering or involved or get them to show up in any context other than when they're mad about something, (laughs) which I understand. But unfortunately, I don't think that's a problem of people not wanting because people do care. Obviously, the fact that they show up when they're mad about something indicates that they care Mm -hmm. about things. But it indicates that we're not engaging people in meaningful opportunities to direct those energies that otherwise coalesce around being cranky. <laughs> we're not giving them opportunities to meaningfully engage outside of that. Hmm. You know, we, we haven't met people where they are. But but I also just think that some of these advisory roles that we're funneling youth into, like advisory, bo- advisory boards, councils, parliaments, stuff like that, even in adult life, some of those opportunities are more ritual than, mm. than real engagement. That. They tend to confuse control for leadership. And I keep hammering home this point. Control and leadership are not the same thing. Mm. And the thing is that our students notice when we ask them to do things that don't really mean anything. Yeah, they see through it. It's very transparent. Mm-hmm. And if there's no follow-up, if there's no after-action report that says, here's the impact of your contribution then it's just going to be like, well, why did I bother to do that? Why did I spend my time? Good question.
0: <laughs> that quote was talking about how the lack of follow-up or feedback or evidence that their input was listened to or, or that it it was worth something what they did. I have seen in, in my experience as a teacher, my kids be disheartened by feeling like they did something really good and then never hearing, hey, that was what we were hoping for. Thanks for doing that. Well, uh, yeah. Whatever. I mean, that's just
1: generally true of people. People need feedback whether it be positive or negative feedback to know that what they have done in their job in their volunteerism in their student efforts whatever it is they need feedback to
0: know that they're doing well and we were watching abbott elementary they're back from a little break and one of the teachers on there was talking about how you don't get rewarded when you deserve it it's only when the people are like looking at you basically that they choose to notice you And that's true for all of these things, right? Like, if your town needs something, they're going to look to you in that moment, but not the rest of the time. Or if you're a mayor of a small town, right, you're only going to hear the bad stuff because that's when people show up because they want to tell you that they care about it, not because they're going to show up some other Wednesday night and tell you, hey, good job last week. I think it's hard because a lot of these positions that we're talking about are people like me who have chosen to do a very hard job, in which case I I normally only hear what's bad. I'm only told this didn't work. I'm only told we don't have the money for this or whatever. So when I when you like when you're talking about this quote about like there's no follow up or there's no support or there's no, you know, feedback. I can see how that deters people from wanting to keep doing it because those are the exact same things that I've been looking for as a teacher for ten years that I wonder if I need and I can't live without anymore. That's all. That's all. Thus concludes your TED talk. I have strong feelings. Okay. Tackling the problem. So a word of warning from the Chronicle of Philanthropy, the article, uh, Americans are volunteering less. And it is discussing how little research there is out there um, yeah. about this. And so the quote says this. Schools at all education levels have tried a vast array of ways to encourage philanthropy, volunteering, and other types of civic engagement among students. Little agreement exists about what works or how to conduct these programs at a scale that involves students who might not otherwise participate or are among the growing number who attend school remotely. And with education now battleground in these in the so-called culture wars, recent efforts to restore civic education to the curriculum seem likely to generate more heat and light.
1: Yes. I, and I saw this mentioned several times. All the researchers out there were like, well, here's the kind of literature review, but honestly, there's not much, re- much research. We're going to probably, I hope, see a surge in post-COVID research into this kind of stuff yeah. too, because... The destruction of the community is, I think, the main problem that's fallen out of the educational system, but also just society generally post-COVID.
0: Mm-hmm. And the other thing that you and I are kind of bringing into this, so Chelsea and I live in a very small village, and we are currently facing the reality of a school that is more than 100 years old will not be occupied in the upcoming years. Mm-hmm. And our district is moving towards the idea of a campus. And yeah. which is farther, it's not actually in the village limits. It's, it's not outside of town and a district property. Mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. And when we know that school districts are leaving villages and communities, those are the things that build communities and make them stronger. And that's what holds people there. I can see this community shift happening, and it's obvious to me because I grew up here.
1: And we often do it unthinkingly in the name of efficiency. Like that's kind of the big drive here is in, our, in the case of our school here is like one, the building is old and presents a number of challenges because it's old. So the physical plant is falling apart. There are like health issues, all kinds of stuff. They need a new building and that much is true. But unfortunately, we kind of just unthinkingly do this. Oh, let's condense all of these kids into this school campus that is completely isolated from the town
0: it's not walkable. No. It's not friendly to anything. It's completely isolated by actual cornfields. I'm not even being dramatic. It is just cornfields. I think one of the things that I have loved when I bought my house here and, and living in this community that we live in was I loved that the school was where it is. Mm-hmm. And that was what, actually one of the things that made me want to buy this house was that I faced the school. I can yeah. see it. Yeah. Like, that's what these communities should look like. And so now that our village is looking at it going, well, now what with this space and the fear of what can come instead of knowing that we have this little home of community right here mm-hmm. it's sad that's an
1: interesting point about the way the physical plant even can impact some of these conversations the, the way that we physically construct yeah. our campuses in community or not can can you know feed into some well, of these concerns like what we're talking about and
0: there was a, we're, like, doing it in multiple ways. Sorry to cut you off. No, but no. Yeah. We're, like, devaluing community in so many ways.
1: Yeah, it's a thousand paper cuts, it's, right? Like we were talking about earlier, that quote about churches and schools being at the center of, of volunteerism. And then, like, our generation's relationship to the church is very complicated, too. Mm-hmm. The church is not often seen as a welcoming place to Mm-mm. communities of different sorts and... I think there's valid criticism in that as much as I think churches, they really do provide community and connection to those Mm -hmm. members who are already there. They haven't always done and still continue to struggle with providing community
0: and connection for people who aren't already there. Mm -hmm. I'm sure that we've talked about on the podcast, but there's a a little bar in town that Chelsea and I love Mm -hmm. and it's our little hometown spot. And there is an odd little community in that bar. And it's, it's very refreshing uh, for the community to exist in the way that it does in this little bar. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why I love that little bar so much is because, you know, Chelsea and I are definitely some of the youngest uh, who who visit it. It's
1: an intergenerational watering hole. It is. And there aren't enough of
0: those kinds of spaces. These are the little things that make communities. And I think community looks like a lot of things. And I think that's what's important. But when, when it doesn't have an identity, that's when our students, in this case, don't have an opportunity to always give back to it. Mm-hmm. Because it's not something obvious to us right mm-hmm. like for our kids who are not going to be on this campus in the cornfields our anchoring point won't necessarily be the village where the community was or where yeah. the elementary was that's
1: sad i was in the course of researching this actually i was reading about this program that matched i think it was maybe like third and fourth graders really young kids they would go into like senior homes retirement facilities assisted living facilities and like just kind of hang out with Mm -hmm. the residents of those places that's great and they were talking about the impact of that and it's like this cross-generational social thing so stuff like that becomes more difficult when we isolate ourselves physically Mm -hmm. okay there was there was one more point here about participating through voting um this was from the tough to growing voters article again the coco's We don't automatically become engaged, informed, and empowered to participate in our democracy when we turn 18. Instead, young people begin to understand and experience democracy and what role they are expected to play in it well before they reach voting age. Before youth reach 18, they can have or miss out on experiences and receive implicit or explicit messages that shape whether they believe their voice matters and that change is possible. They also may or may not get practical information about how, where, and when to vote. All of these factors are shaped by the specific community conditions that surround young people in their town or city, school, neighborhood, etc. The availability and quality of opportunities to develop as a voter and active community member is frequently unequal across these settings. Hmm. So let's use that as a jumping off point and talk about how it looks like. Yeah, how we are motivating
0: volunteerism and civic engagement among students in our Mm -hmm. educational systems. Yeah, I think that last quote about before they reach 18... I will say that, you know, I have students who disagree with some decision. And last year it was that we got rid of backpacks. Mm -hmm. That was a big, big, big deal. Okay. And the students felt like that decision was made without them. And it's because it was. And it was because it was a safety concern. Unfortunately, sometimes decisions just have to be made, right? Mm -hmm. But I told those kids last year, I'm like, well, why don't you just write, you know, our assistant principal an email and tell them how you feel. And at least lay out what you think should have been handled or how it should have gone or, you know, what the stipulation should have been or something like that. And I had a few do it. And I asked them, I said, well, was it worth it? And they're like, well, I feel better because I at least said what I wanted to, but didn't change anything. And I said, but isn't it better to have at least said what you wanted to? And they're like, well, yeah, that's worth it. But it was still like, you know, kind of sucked that they didn't change their minds. And I was like, well, they probably weren't going to. But Yeah isn't it always worth it to have at least put your neck out to say, yeah, this is where I stand.
1: Although honestly, I think the students had a point. They should have been involved in that conversation from the get go. That's not to say that their opinion should have been the final decision, but if you're going to make a decision that has a large impact on the day to day lives of students or school culture or something, you probably should be involving students in those conversations. Well,
0: But, but you also have to do it. When my chances of survival yeah. um, go up, no, no, yeah, I'm even fifty percent no, no. as a public high school teacher, again, then I will welcome back a book bag. But you know what? I don't have to wonder about. yeah, no, it's not about the, again, it's not
1: about the end result as to whether or not yeah. that decision would have been made, but it's more about if there are decisions involving the day-to-day life of students, students should have a say. A lot of times the say that they want to have is ill-informed or just immature or whatever. Well, yeah, because
0: they're the kid that's like, well, I won't carry an AR-15 to school in my backpack. <laughs> sure, sure. And but, it's like, well, but what about the one that will? But do we want is, them to not have a backpack?
1: Here, but the thing is, is that involving students in those conversations gives you an opportunity to explain to them why these things are important as well. They have more of an understanding from the get-go of why these changes are being made and what's being required of them. Anyway, meeting them where they are is important in a variety of ways. And you have a lot of systems in place to sort of funnel kids into these decision making Mm -hmm. apparatuses.
0: So these are just some some things that I've seen in the last 10 years. So we have previously had our government class that required a X amount of hours of community service as part of their grade for the nine weeks of Mm -hmm. a semester. So that was an encouraging way to get some of our kids out. There are groups like the Key Club and National Honor Society, and National Honor Society specifically rewards community service as it's one of the pillars for being admitted, among others. And so as part of being selected to join National Honor Society, but also as a member trying to stay in in good standing, you have to volunteer so many hours uh, per semester. Mm -hmm. Um, Of course, there's also traditional institutions like the YMCA, the YWCA, or like Girl Scouts or Boy Scouts, which are still pretty popular. Mm -hmm. The community in which I work has a community cleanup day. Uh, They'll sign up to pick up trash after home basketball games or events. A lot of my students love going to the local dog shelters and donating time walking or cleaning facilities. We have a lot of church activities still in the village that I work in. Um, And some even go on service trips. Yeah. So the other thing that I wanted to mention, and and this probably came up actually on the episode about uh, graduation requirements, which we did, but Ohio has a community service seal for a graduation, Mm -hmm. and that's always locally defined. And so basically, these students complete a service project that's aligned with the guidelines adopted by their school district. And so, for example, Columbus Public, I found that they require at least 45 hours per year for this seal,
1: Of volunteer service? Yep.
0: Some SEALs are completed by way of, like, just a bunch of paperwork that gets submitted. Some of them are a project. So that just kind of depends on the local, you know what I mean, the school expectations. So my my students seem to value it. And it's definitely one of these things that, like, when one kid decides they're going to go to the dog shelter, then, like, a ton of kids are going to go to the dog shelter. Yeah. And so that's... I love when they do that obviously. Yeah, it spreads they, like wildfire.
1: Yeah. These things these things spread and that's that's one of the reasons why I don't give up hope that we're just becoming permanently disengaged and uninterested in civic activity and volunteering and you know even voting and things like this. I don't give up hope because there's evidence that these things can catch fire. And that shows me that it's more an issue of access and opportunity and knowing your options. So,
0: yeah, those are just a few other things that kind of popped in my head as we were talking that that my kids do love to do and enjoy doing.
1: Okay. Well, so in addition to the community service, there's another realm in educational circles uh, that gets called service learning. And this is a term that needs a bit of unpacking there's federal legislation that defines what it is. uh, And you can, of course, agree or disagree that this is a a worthwhile definition. But the legislation we're talking about is the National and Community Service Act of 1990. And this has been re-upped and like, I think they've changed the name of this law a couple of times too, maybe when it got Hmm. reauthorized. Okay, this is going to be a mouthful, but just stick with me. A method under which students or participants learn and develop through active participation in thoughtfully organized service that is conducted in and meets the needs of a community. How many versions of participant and participation could be thrown to that sentence? A lot. There's a lot.
0: One pan. more time. One more
1: time. <laughs> so service learning <laughs> is coordinated <laughs> with an elementary school, secondary school, institution of higher ed, or community service program, and with the community. It's... Helps foster civic responsibility. I'm breaking these up into sentences, you, but this is you're all doing one sentence.
0: Giving them a great service. It says, and,
1: and, and, and. and. there are so many comma. Um, yes, there are lots of col- semicolons. 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 Okay. And helps foster cer- civic responsibility. And that is integrated into and enhances the academic curriculum of the students or the educational components of the community service program in which the participants are enrolled.
0: And. <laughs>
1: The last one. And provides structured time for the students or participants to reflect on the service experience. Okay. Anyway, you would expect legislature to read like this, but yes. Did Charles Dickens right that? That uh, sounds like it. Okay. So anyway, the government can't figure out how to state this clearly, but that that's that's the gist. So so But they
0: want us to make sure we're doing this.
1: E- yes. They think that this is important. This is one
0: of those things that they wrote. So poorly, so that literally anything that we fill in on that paper could apply.
1: They have some... This is from a youth.gov article on service. It's just called service learning. They're saying that consistently about two-thirds of public schools in the U.S. recognized or arranged community service, Mm -hmm. while only one-third of schools offered service learning. So they're trying to set up this distinction between... The community service opportunities, like the volunteer opportunities that you just described, that's a whole group of volunteer activities that are still important to do. But but are separate from? Separate and distinct from service learning, which has the curricular component and the built-in time for hmm. reflection
0: because people that's you, don't, the key. you
1: don't get your kids who are volunteering their hours for NHS to sit around and reflect on their volunteer time for NHS they
0: actually do have to write on the oh, form good. they have to write on their form what service it's providing for the community and who they're helping okay well that's that's a kind of a step in the service learning direction, It's like a little then. baby step yeah it's a baby but step but it it's part of the form they have to like I would say like, probably, they had to share who they helped, right. how they helped, what they helped. Probably not. That service is
1: probably not integrated with a curricular component, I would imagine. No, because it's
0: an extracurricular activity. Right. Right. The government class mm-hmm. requiring it is really right up the alley.
1: Yeah, insofar as it actually overlaps with the curriculum and they have opportunity to reflect.
0: I'm not sure what the assignment looks like now because we, we have a new government teacher. Mm-hmm. I'll try to follow up. Yeah, I would love to know yeah, what curious. that looks like. Okay. So
1: this note, this is again from the youth.gov article. It was saying service learning is distinct from community service and volunteering because it focuses on meeting both the needs of the community and that of the learner through a mutually beneficial partnership. Hmm. So the volunteering in this aspect is meant to benefit the community as much as the
0: student. Yeah, I can understand what they're attempting to do, but I also think that some of their benefits are that they did it and that they were an active participant. You know what I'm trying to say, like,
1: except, I mean, you and I were having a kind of a, a little miniature debate about this earlier because we were talking about how you have to make sure that the things that you're asking students to do are structured in such a way that they feel like they have buy-in. Yeah, you're right. And that's feeds into this, like, can, well, how do they phrase it? Well, Ritual can, rather than, what was it? Yeah. Ritual as opposed to real engagement. That problem is sort of what service learning projects are attempting to yeah.
0: get at. I will say that they are suddenly very motivated as seniors when uh, they have nothing to write on their community service scholarship applications. <laughs> yeah. They'll be coming around. Do you need anything done at your do house? Do you need do me you, to, like, do like, me to do some chores for you for free? Leaves. Can I clean your classroom? Can I wipe <laughs> down your chalkboard for you? Yeah, it's <laughs> like they service. are
1: struggling. It's for service. It is I'm service. I'm volunteering.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, anyway. All right.
1: Well, I wanted to just hit on a couple of examples mm-hmm. of these service learning projects because this article is kind of usefully helping because cause I was just sitting there thinking like what is it, what What's does this mean? look like distinct from the traditional volunteering and engagement mm-hmm. opportunities that students have. And so they kind of broke it up in a couple different categories. It was the first one was direct service learning projects. So that's like students teaching dance mm-hmm. classes to younger kids volunteering at homeless shelters. These are like more the like dog what we like were, talking what we were about, just talking yeah. about, visiting folks in assisted living facilities. Indirect service learning projects. So this is where students are working on issues that are broader and focused. So like researching a town's history or restoring yeah. historic buildings, planting trees, stuff like that. Research-based service learning projects. This is where students are gathering and presenting information on areas of interest. Writing a guide on community services. Researching the effects of air quality in the area. Gathering hmm. information about nonprofits or NGOs or government agencies within their communities. And then the last one was advocacy for so yeah. service learning, where students might encourage action on issues that impact the community, like present at a public forum at city hall or a district board meeting, creating speeches to present to admins, administrators about topics of interest for the school, local needs, and then um, encouraging students also to work with elected officials for, you know, any number of issues, city ordinances, yeah. anything like Makes that. Makes sense. Yeah. So there's overlap with some of the initiatives that you were talking about. But it, again, it's sort of like a more structured curricular approach to these things. I'm just thinking about back to when I was a student in high school. I feel as though I would have benefited from feeling like my activities in these areas had more impact. And and it's not that they didn't have impact. It's just that I didn't have the feeling that they did necessarily mm-hmm. because there weren't these me- these structural mechanisms that mm-hmm. provided evidence that what i was doing was helping that makes sense or hurting it could have been hurting but either way i didn't know because there was no feedback for me
0: i don't know maybe i could maybe i could work this into my curriculum i'm wondering (laughs) get some ideas does it make sense for 10th grade to have to i'm sure it does
1: yeah i mean i think not bystanders no i think these things can happen for any age group honestly i might start
0: working on that Maybe cool. that could be like an extra kind of opportunity.
1: The more meaningful service learning opportunities start with students identifying needs in their own community like themselves. A,
0: where, yeah, where there are shortcomings. Like or They
1: where organically go and talk to people and discover needs. Mm-hmm. Those initiatives are more successful when you're meeting a real need as mm-hmm. opposed to an imagined one. Anyway, and then there's just I had a couple more random thoughts here. And that's that I think that liberal arts education, generally speaking, the the task of treating education as preparing a whole human being for civic engagement rather than just like preparing a job seeker to have a job mm-hmm. thinking of education mm-hmm. the primary focus of education being that of liberal education where we're providing strong foundations in broad di- you know and overlapping disciplines that talk to one another rejecting this push toward hyper specialization is good for students because it allows them to have more opportunities to exercise what end up getting called soft skills, but are really not soft skills at all because they're the meat and right. potatoes of what makes civic responsibility happen. That's just my liberal arts soapbox. And, and then the other thing was like giving kids to the, the freedom to operate their own extracurricular like clubs and teams and things like that. That was something that was really important to, to me As a student, the fact that I was able to start my own club and run it. Yeah, I think that's great. The responsibility that I had to take on when I was doing those things, all of that stuff feeds into fostering this civic-mindedness.
0: Yeah, I agree with it. Okay. Any final thoughts? Like I said, I'm just trying to think of ways to to work this in, but I'm also considering it as uh, I'm about to probably be taking over my school student council Mm -hmm. and trying to kind of reframe that in a way that is a better service for all students yeah but also what we offer to our community
1: you know i think it's a great opportunity and I, we need to get an update from you when you've been at it for for a while to let us know how we yeah. a lot of luck well maybe next school year when you start to take on that project we'll mm-hmm. we'll revisit it and yeah. give you an update because i would like to hear how that goes yeah. for you
0: okay are
1: we uh, ready to move on to filling blank? Unless
0: you had any list.
1: No, I didn't. I got on my liberal arts soapbox, so that was really all. I'm impressed you got to work that one in there. I try to work in it as often as I possibly I mean, we can. We are both
0: a product of it, so we both value the liberal arts education.
1: Yeah. I mean, well, the thing is, is like K-12 should be seen as the primary liberal arts engine of the country, but even K-12 is... Kind of giving into the idea that hyper specialization as soon as possible is good for job. We're not doing it willingly. No, no, no. I didn't mean to suggest that. There are forces at work that are pushing everything in that direction, uh, many of which are beyond your control. But I think we just need to kind of resist that as much as possible. So,
0: okay. Fill in the blank. Alrighty. Would you like me to read the last episode's question? I can if you want to. Okay. You can do this one. It's up to you. Why don't you read it? I'll do it. Last episode. 80? Eighty before Dr. Shorters, because we Sorry, didn't gosh, do, film to do like math. Eighty, I believe. Okay, yes. so episode this is from 80. episode eighty. In the early nineteen hundreds, there was support for marking more of a transition from elementary to secondary education. In nineteen oh nine, this school in Columbus, Ohio, was the first to be designed as a separate junior high school, incorporating what was then the last two years of elementary school with the first years of high school. And the name of that school was Indianola Junior High School.
1: Okay. All
0: right, this episode. Yes,
1: this episode's question. National Honor Society is one of the most famous student organizations, building its purpose off of the four pillars, scholarship, leadership, service, and character. The National Honor Society was founded by the National Association of Secondary School Principals, with the Alpha Chapter of NHS founded at Fifth Avenue High School by Principal Edward S. Reneerson in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. In what year was NHS created? I didn't realize it was around this long. I know. It's been a while.
0: All right. Shall we talk about what we learned? I will go first. I would love for you to go first. Because we kind of both share yours a little bit. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, we do. Okay. So really quickly, link in the show notes, of course, to this tweet that I am talking about. But I saw a cool tweet about the 1998 Grammys. So Pavarotti was supposed to perform Nessun Dorma, but he wasn't in good enough health. And so the producers went to Aretha Franklin's dressing room and she listened to a tape of the rehearsal once and went on stage and performed it
1: i'm a person who who has done theater and music and such and that thought is so terrifying i yeah. have
0: nightmares about that yeah but that's but you're not aretha franklin no i'm not i'm no way so to be thrown on the spot for the grammys so, like live, this is like night of they determined he's
1: yes not in health yes. to do it. he
0: was in town and wasn't well enough and the other fun fact you probably already read it but did you know what uh nesting dorma stood for or what it meant i did you you Did you know it because of any reason other than, like, you probably already speak the language, or was it just because you knew what... It was because I already had a little bit of the language, gotcha. yeah. yeah. So it means let no one sleep. And one last thing, because I was afraid somebody would ask. It's an aria from Puccini's opera, Turn Dot. It's one of the best-known tenor arias in all of opera, and it is about lovers. Yes? Did I read that? Yes. So anyways... I was afraid Chelsea was going to follow up because sometimes she'll just, like, randomly ask me, like, follow-up questions is something I learned and I, like, didn't go that deep. So um, I, like, actually kept open the Wikipedia and I was ready for Pertini. I, like, had yeah, it all. You know,
1: you did really well. I will say I had an unfair advantage on this one because I had a friend who was in this opera
0: and I saw did her. Did you see her? Yes. Oh, this is the one you saw? Turned out Yes. Cool. And she is incredible. Anyways, the other night I was listening to... I was listening to Ness and Dorma, and Chelsea was like, what are you doing? like, it's Aretha Franklin. I don't know what I'm watching. It's definitely worth a watch. So I will include that in the show notes, but I learned, I guess, about Ness and Dorma is just what I'm going to say I learned. Okay. What did you learn? I learned about
1: sensory deprivation tanks because I went in one. You did? I've always been curious about these things because the thought of being in a dark, silent place is very appealing to me, but I didn't know how my body would actually react to it. So yeah, we got, we got appointments for some float tanks and I tried it and it was nice. It was very relaxing. I'm not sure it was like a transformatively powerful experience that would rock my life, but it was nice and relaxing. And sometimes I think actually the most beneficial part of it for me is that I'm the sort of person who needs to kind of be forced to relax because I will not remove myself from the stimuli that, thing, that make yeah. my nervous system be crazy. I just won't do it, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is bad. But d- do not do not follow my example in this. But yes, it was interesting. Yours, your tank was different from my, my, tank. my tank. Mine was the tank where you get in and like close the door and you look like you're in a space capsule and
0: mm-hmm. it's, it's
1: pitch black and you float in
0: a little bit mine of water. It was an open room. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We were two very different people. Mm-hmm. I enjoyed it. Like Chelsea said, I don't I don't know if, like, my life has changed. <laughs> but I also don't know if I would experience it differently having been familiar with it. Because mm-hmm. there's also the learning curve of, like, what do I do? When do I do it? It was an How unfamiliar I... place. Yeah, because, yeah. like, you're about to get in a 1,000 pounds of Epsom salt. If you have a hangnail, you find out very quickly they have all the lights on a timer. And I fell asleep. And so I, like, jerked awake in a pool afraid I had overslept. So I didn't make it quite as... Relaxing as I could have at the end. I think we know now. Next time, how I'm to very I so it. much more prepared. Yeah, the further I get from it, I think the more I enjoyed it. They like sit cross legged on the floor and they drink tea, and I'm like, <gasps> <laughs> <laughs> this
1: this place is essentially the opposite of a high school English classroom, if you can imagine,
0: in terms of energy level. Oh, it was. I think that's what struck me mm-hmm. to be in a place that's so like intentionally not overwhelming they've made it a sensory experience that minimizes yeah yeah, they they play music and it like tapers off and then there's silence
1: and I think I had a similar experience to you where when I first went in my brain was going crazy just about I had to fill the silence yeah inside my own head with stuff and then I was just like okay maybe I should try intentionally to not do that and then I quieted down and you didn't fall asleep though right I did not but I did get kind of into a state where I was like pretty chill stop thinking about mm-hmm. all of the things see
0: i just fell asleep the weirdest thing is that you know i haven't been to the black sea have you have you been in the black sea no okay but it's like i've
1: been in salt lake okay so which was disgusting
0: experience. Ooh, it
1: smells so the disgusting bad disgusting version of this yeah that really is i've floated like, in the
0: great salt lake though yes you did like the armpit version mm-hmm. of the black sea so the black sea one of the reasons it's famous is because of its salt content um is so high so the, the the salt that you float in at a sensory deprivation tank is even higher than that. So it's very odd to get into a body of water and immediately your legs like, just like go flying up. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes I felt like your body was fighting you on like where you should be. So Odd feeling. Mm-hmm. That was a weird thing to adjust to. Mm-hmm. Anyways, that was our... Okay, so we both learned a lot.
1: We learned a Maybe. lot about Pavarotti and float tanks.
0: Wow, what a combination. <laughs> I was trying to do the math on that. I was like, those aren't going to work out no. in this sentence, but mm-hmm. they did. We got it. Well, we will be back in two weeks. Send tots and pears because state testing, t- state testing will be, my state testing will be over by our next episode. Oh so boy. if you don't hear from me, the hire Department of Education in my <laughs> body, please.
1: Okay. Thank you for joining us. We will talk to you in two weeks and good luck with your state testing. Bye. Bye. supporting 16 to 1
0: we're trying to grow our audience so please check us out at 16 to 1.com all spelled out and tell your friends about the show on our website you
1: can find links to follow us on social media an archive of all our old episodes and a contact form where you can get
0: in touch thanks again for listening and we'll catch you next show what is dole whip anyway Wait. We... what is dole whip yeah it's um it's pineapple stuff